Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Just a quick message before we start. A week ago, we saw the tragic murder of Northern Irish investigative journalist Lyra McKee. Lyra was a brave and tenacious journalist who dedicated her short life to uncovering injustice. A fundraising page has been set up in her honour to go towards funeral expenses and to establish a legacy to mark her contribution to journalism. If you'd like to donate, search GoFundMe and Lyra McKee. Thank you. Alice Ross is sat in a busy restaurant in Washington, D.C. To any casual observer, she's there drinking her coffee, reading the New York Times, except... She's not. She's straining her ears to hear what's being said a few tables over. She's trying desperately not to look. Alice is in the middle of an undercover investigation that will take her and her colleagues to three different countries. I'm Maeve McLennigan, and on this episode of The Tip-Off, chicken, last-minute flights, and the dreaded B-word. We were left with no other choice, really, than to go undercover. It was quite, quite exciting stuff. That's Alice Ross and Lawrence Carter, both reporters with Greenpeace's journalism unit, Unearthed. Our story today doesn't start in DC. Well, at least not for Alice and Lawrence. They're part of a team of journalists at Unearthed, a journalistic team within Greenpeace UK. See, back in 2015, the environmental organisation decided if no one else was going to spend the time and money investigating environmental issues, then they would. And so a team was set up. And for transparency, I should say I was one of those journalists. I worked there for a couple of years. But last year, Alice and Lawrence realised there was one topic that they simply couldn't escape. Brexit. Brexit. Brexit was everywhere in the news. And it still is. But... It's not really an environmental story, is it? So Brexit actually is quite an environmental issue when you look at it because the EU is the source of so much of our environmental laws. Lawrence had actually started looking at Brexit long, long before I arrived at Unearthed in August 2017. I started looking at the environmental implications of Brexit in, I think it was like the summer of 2016. I was in um, Washington, D.C., and someone tipped me off that the... Basically, the Trump administration had put two kind of senior trade negotiators. They basically employed them straight from kind of the hormone beef lobbying industry. And that's kind of emerged as one of the most contentious issues around Brexit. It's the idea that 
that we could do a trade deal with the US and that would be part of us moving away from like a European system of regulation. And so what we noticed as we were kind of investigating this was that there was a certain kind of strand of the pro-Brexit camp that was super keen for us to disentangle ourselves as much as possible from the EU system of regulation so that we could become a much more closer to the US system of regulation. Hormone pump beef was one thing, but there might be another factor that's more familiar. Here's Newsnight's Emily Maitlis talking to Trade Secretary Liam Fox. Trade is abstract, it is complicated, and I know that you accuse us, the media, of obsessing over chicken, but the reason we talk about chicken is it's tangible. People actually understand that as an issue. So is it true that we will change our regulations, our food standards, to accommodate a deal with America? We have no intentions of, of reducing our standards. We've said on a number of occasions uh, that we think the British standards and protection for the consumer, so you will for then the environment, rule out, for the workers. Rule out chlorine washed chicken. It's a very well, simple thing. There is no health issue with that. Uh, the European Union has said that is perfectly safe. So the we issue, should accept that. Then. The issue lies around some of the uh, secondary issues uh, of animal welfare. And it's perfectly reasonable for people to raise that, but it will come much further down the road. In the USA, Chickens being prepared for human consumption are washed in a chlorine rinse. The EU has refused to accept chlorine-washed chicken since 1997, and generally the EU has much higher food standards than the USA. So, in a post-Brexit world, the question is whether the UK would be so keen to trade with the US that it started to accept things like chlorine-washed chicken or hormone-reared beef. And while trade negotiations continue to go on, it doesn't take a wild imagination to think there might be powerful lobby groups arguing one way or another. Lawrence and Alice had already noticed them at work. There were a number of think tanks, both in the US and in the UK, who were pushing for a US-UK free trade deal. We'd also noticed that these think tanks had quite close links to senior politicians. So, for example, I'd done a story on an organisation called the Initiative for Free Trade, who'd held their launch in the Foreign Office and Boris Johnson had written off thousands of pounds worth of room hire fees in order that they could hold their launch in the Foreign Office. Boris Johnson spoke, several other cabinet ministers spoke, and their mission was all about free trade and this free trade deal. Lawrence found a brochure which had been um, accidentally published online by the Initiative for Free Trade. And what this showed was that a number of um, US right-wing think tanks most of which have a lot of dark money funders and Koch brothers funders, were working in collaboration with a number of right-wing UK think tanks, again, which tend not to disclose their donors, to push and to model out a sort of ideal US-UK free trade deal. So they knew there was lobbying going on under the guise of think tanks, supposedly impartial pseudo-academic bodies which create reports and papers exploring policy ideas. The thing is, many think tanks in the US and the UK don't publish where they get their funding from. And so it becomes really hard to know whether the ideas they're putting forth are influenced in any way by interested parties. Alison Lawrence started reading around all about think tanks that seemed to be writing and talking about Brexit and the US trade deal, and one name kept coming up. A British group called the Institute of Economic Affairs, or the IEA. Oh, 
That's why the Institute of Economic Affairs is launching a Brexit unit to ensure that a strong, free market voice is heard clearly as the UK prepares to leave the European Union. The IEA, I think we should also note, is it occupies quite a unique place in sort of the British public sphere. It's a charity, it's an educational charity. It's often billed as Margaret Thatcher's favourite think tank. It's very eminent, it's very established. You'll see its spokespeople on question time and they get quoted hundreds of times a year in the media. And the question is always like, who funds them? Now, the team weren't just assuming that the IEA wasn't being transparent about funding. They did their checks. You start obviously with their company records. You look through their filings with the Charity Commission. There are also um, a number of organisations like um, Transparify who do a lot of digging around funding sources and, and who declares what. And Alice and Lawrence had heard from their colleagues in the US that the IEA were currently touring the states, holding open talks and meetings with people there. Someone um, got in touch with us with a tip-off that Mark Littlewood, who's the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs, was doing a speaker tour in the US. If these guys were touring the US, then Alice and Lawrence wanted to know what was being said. We decided to send people along to as many of those events as we could. It's quite exciting, actually. So I was in touch with two people, one of whom went to the Cornell Club in Manhattan to hear Mark Littlewood speak, and the other who was in Sarasota, Florida which is, I think, a place where mainly retirees live, at the Hyatt Hotel there. And, yeah, I was speaking to them on Signal, and then they were sending me, they were kind of giving me updates as the evening went on. Um, I then also kind of sent through an audio file afterwards. So Lawrence's phone was pinging with Signal messages. These were going way into the night. What the people on the ground were feeding back was really interesting. And it was there that we heard that basically he was raising funds for a trade unit at the Institute for Economic Affairs, which would, he said, prioritise a sweeping deregulatory trade deal between the United States and the UK. And it was at that point that we kind of got really interested. Also, at one of the events, he, he said that uh, he had support from people like Liam Fox and David Davis and Steve Baker for that kind of trade deal. But I remember when Lawrence was listening to the tape, there was this moment when he just sat bolt upright and then he just stood up and ran over to Damien's desk and started like whispering frantically to him. And beyond telling these audiences that they were pushing for deregulated US-UK trade deals, the IEA was also soliciting funds. We felt that it would be in the public interest for us to look much more closely at exactly what those links were, who was funding this project and what their aims were. So when, when their director general is fundraising for a really influential strand of work from sources in the US, that really raises questions about whether they're representing vested interests. So at this point, Alice and Lawrence know the IEA are touring the USA, talking about promoting an unregulated trade deal between the US and UK, and courting funds to do so. They knew they wanted to find out more. But how do you do that? In the end, they decided they were going to have to go undercover. You don't take the decision to go undercover lightly. You have to demonstrate that it's a project which is really in the public interest and that there's no other way of getting the information. You have to jump through a lot of editorial hoops before you get sign-off 
to use any kind of subterfuge, really, particularly this, this kind of undercover investigation. So we spent, it must have been a couple of months, I guess, putting together our argument for going undercover. We had to establish that there was no other way to get to this information. And we also had to establish that there was a really strong and compelling public interest in going undercover. So we looked at all sorts of other ways to get the information. We'd, we'd filed loads of freedom of information requests, for example, to try and flush out details of the government's interactions with senior figures in the IEA, with Shankar Singham, who is the sort of trade expert who's at the core of the IEA's trade policy. And he's also a very, very influential figure with the European Research Group, which is the sort of right-wing flank of the Tories who become very, very influential in the um, in the Brexit negotiations. So FOIs were getting blocked routinely. We weren't able to access any information that way. The IEA consistently refuses to answer any questions about its funders. They say that they need to respect their donors' privacy. And at the same time, there was this sort of urgent question about who whose interests were being represented in the IEA's representations on Brexit. They compiled a report which they talked through with their editor, Damien Kaya. But working inside Greenpeace is a little different to, say, working at the Times or the Guardian. The security protocol there is high, and for good reason. I think there have been examples in the past where people have found bugs in the office, presumably from private security firms. And so we're always very careful to avoid talking about these sorts of projects in the office. And so, yeah, it's kind of a lot of walks around the park and um, using Signal to, to speak with each other about the project and not using stuff like Google Docs, which is a nightmare because version control on everything you're writing becomes extremely difficult. But yeah, we, we, we kind of had an approach which was, we were, we were pretty careful, but not to the point where it became really problematic. After one of those walks around the park, Damien, the editor, agreed what they had so far was really interesting, but they had clearly hit a dead end with what they could get publicly. And the hypothesis that big powers could be paying to influence UK trade deals, well, there was definitely public interest in following that up. But knowing you want to do an undercover sting is just the first step. Much more difficult is working out how you're going to do that. This is like a really difficult part of the project where you're trying to think of exactly how to approach the IEA. And so that involved kind of hours of conversations, essentially, about kind of, I guess the idea is to kind of match what your approach is to them with kind of what you suspect is going on. The team wrapped their brains and they came up with the idea of posing as a public affairs consultancy group. We're acting on behalf of a hedge fund that wants to influence Brexit and kind of the idea that we'd come up with was to start a grassroots campaign to try and get support for a US-UK free trade deal. And as part of that, we wanted to speak to stakeholders in the UK, essentially. So we wanted to make sure that we were pitching our campaign right and that we weren't treading on any toes. We also set up a kind of fake grassroots campaign called Trade is Great, which was just a holding page. It, had, it just had a kind of a short sort of slideshow of 
ports and shipping containers and fruit and veg and things like that. So once you've done all of the legal side and got all of your editorial sign-off, you then have to consider um, how you're going to go about creating an entity that can withstand a little bit of scrutiny because the first thing that you do when you receive an email from a stranger, I think, for a lot of us, the first thing you do is Google them. So we had a website for our consultancy, our public affairs consultancy. We also had a website for our Trade is Great campaign. We had associated email addresses. We hadn't had time to create like a Twitter presence or anything anything like that, which would have been really, really useful. But we had to have US phone numbers. We had to have all sorts of different elements to just try and pass the first smell test to get into the room with our initial meetings. So now they had all this in place, what next? Well, they could have just approached the IEA directly, but they were a little worried about that. One of the concerns that we had was that the IEA would kind of be a bit suspicious of our approach. And so we thought about ways in which we could get introduced to them by a third party. And when they thought back to the IEA's speaker tour in the US, they realised the perfect third party was right there, the organisers of that tour, a group called the Atlas Network. The Atlas Network connects more than 450 free market organisations around the world, and it's a powerful player in the US political landscape. If they vouch for the team's fake consultancy group, then it would add much needed credibility. So that's where they started. A lot of crafting of an email. So we did it over email and we spent a long time trying to kind of pitch it just right. Because obviously kind of you've never met this person, you're kind of quite paranoid that they're going to be suspicious of who you are. So trying to kind of trying really hard to make your pitch perfect. So it's kind of back and forth, back and forth on the email. And then I think we went out of the office and used a VPN to send an email from the email address of the company. But it's really nerve-wracking sending the email because you've spent weeks crafting this legend and, you know, stress testing it and so on. But it's your first contact with the outside world when you have to sort of face the reality of whether or not your story is going to wash with these with these people who you're, who you're trying to convince. It's really nerve-wracking. And if that didn't work... If that didn't work, that, then potentially that's months of work down the drain. Mm. But even after reading and rereading the email so many times, after hitting send, they realised a serious mistake in the text. Later we spotted that we'd failed to um, Americanise all of our spelling, which was a bit nerve-wracking. Just an errant S where they should have put a Z could have blown the whole thing. But they needn't have worried. He responded straight away. We'd love to meet, um, and we set up, set up a time. But that wasn't where the stress would end. They set up a time and place to meet in the US, and Lawrence got planning his flight over. But then one day, out of the blue, he got a message. It was from this guy, the representative from the Atlas Network, who he was due to meet in a week's time. And he was actually at the hotel that we'd agreed to meet him at, asking where I was. Then I had a chain of emails before I'd even seen the first one, just as he slowly dawned on him that he'd gotten the time wrong. Uh, and thankfully, he was able to meet us the next week. Once they finally got over the panic of that going wrong, Alice and Lawrence got to work in earnest, making plans for where the actual meet would happen. 
somewhere that would be suitable for the undercover reporting they were planning. You have to do a lot of scoping out in advance of where you're going to be meeting people and so on, because you're aware you've only got one shot. So we knew that we needed to meet outside of his office. And we spent days, didn't we, on TripAdvisor, looking at different hotels and different restaurants or cafes, because you need somewhere where you're going to be able to hear what they're saying. You need somewhere that's just right, don't you? But obviously, because we weren't in DC, we couldn't do it. We couldn't hit the streets and find the right place. So we just spent forever on TripAdvisor, didn't we? At one point, Alice called up pretending to be booking a table on behalf of her hard-of-hearing mother, just to check that the acoustics were just right. And there was something else more fundamental. See, Alice and Lawrence are both British, so it wouldn't look right them posing as staff from an American public affairs group. So they got in some other reporters, journalists who are well-established at going undercover, though they can't say much more about them than that. We were working with two colleagues, who, uh, one of whom had an American accent, and we flew out to DC a couple of days before the meeting to kind of practice some role play around kind of exactly how the meeting might work and the questions that we wanted to ask of him, but also kind of the questions that he might ask of us, and kind of we need to make sure that you know, we had answers about who we are as a company and exactly kind of who our client is. We didn't want to say who our client was because they were fictitious, so we had to have a kind of a good answer for why we couldn't tell them who our client was. And so, yeah, we spent kind of two days in a house in DC just doing that, really. The place set, the prep done, the team took their positions. The undercover reporters they'd brought in made their way to meet this guy, the representative from the Atlas Network, the man who was potentially their way in to winning the IEA's trust. The morning of the meeting, it felt a little bit like Christmas morning in a way. It was like really exciting and uh, nerve-wracking. We all got up. Lawrence drove us to the hotel. I had a table nearby where the meeting was going to be taking place. We made sure that our undercover people were slightly early to the meeting so that they were there. I was sitting across the room and I could make sure that we knew what was unfolding. I couldn't hear what was being said, but I was watching from across the room with my copy of the New York Times. Meanwhile, Lawrence was the getaway driver in an underground car park nearby. So we knew that, you know, for example, nobody had stormed away from the table. We knew that the meeting had gone okay, but, you know, I left separately from our undercover agents. So I didn't really have much of an idea of what had actually unfolded at the meeting until I got back to the house. I just knew it had run for about 45 minutes, an hour. Back at the house, the undercover reporters fed back the news. The Atlas Network had gone for it. So it turned out that what he'd actually said was that trade is great sounded like a really fantastic campaign that dovetailed quite neatly with some other work that he knew was going on with the Institute for Economic Affairs and with other groups in the US. So that element of our hypothesis sort of immediately fell into place. He was happy to set up a meeting with the IEA. In fact, he had a better idea. And better yet, he invited us to a conference that was happening the following week in Copenhagen, Denmark. We, we already knew that the conference was happening and um, we'd been hoping that we'd get an invitation. And that just fell into place straight away. So we could immediately move to the next phase of the investigation, really, which was scrambling everything together for Copenhagen. 
So it's game on. Alice and Lawrence have been told that members of the IEA group are going to be in Copenhagen at a conference, and they could meet them there. Then they'd find out if their hypothesis was correct, that the think tank was up for taking funding from hidden sources and helping lobbyists get access to key politicians deciding policy around Brexit. But this next stage of the plan would take some scrambled planning. And all the while, Alice and Lawrence's colleagues back in the office in London have no idea where they've disappeared to. No one else in the team really knew what we were doing apart from our editors, who we were in kind of regular contact with, updating them, sort of making joint decisions with them about kind of the next phase. But yeah, generally we were kind of having to make yeah, a lot of very fast decisions and make sure we were getting them cleared as we went along. And obviously after we got invited to Copenhagen, we had to draft a whole new kind of prima facie document and get that seen by lawyers and signed off by our editors before that went ahead. So it's kind of, yeah, a really crazy few days. Time was tight, really tight. I had one night at home and then we had to prep a different undercover reporter. I met him at my house early the next morning and we just immediately started running through scripts and trying to prepare for this. So they arrived in Copenhagen with a new undercover reporter this time, a fellow Brit who they'd prepped and was all ready to go. So we woke up feeling pretty hopeful about the whole thing. It was a gorgeous day in Copenhagen, beautiful city. We kind of did a few last-minute preparations. Then the person that was doing the undercover set off with their kind of undercover camera and their button, all, all set to go. And then I got a call from him basically saying that there was heavily armed police at the doors of this conference and that they were searching everyone's bags and doing pat-downs. And... That kind of obviously made us quite paranoid. In fact, there were metal detectors at the door, the type you find at airports, and they hadn't planned for that. The reporter was wearing a hidden camera, and that would definitely be found. So they reassembled the team in a nearby park and decided he'd have to go in without a recording device. It wasn't ideal, but it was better than nothing. The problem was, the hidden camera was built into one of the buttons on his shirt. We had to quickly had meet to... him in the park and take all the kind of video recording equipment off him. So there in the park, they had to strip him off and get a new shirt on him. Later, the security equipment was removed and they were able to get him back in with the camera and just in time. A little while after rejoining the conference, the undercover reporter was approached by a man called Michael Carnuccio, the CEO of an Oklahoma-based think tank called the E-Foundation. He explained that the Atlas Network had suggested that he introduce himself to them. And that he was going to make an introduction to Mark Littlewood from the IEA later on that day. Uh, then kind of sat down and proceeded to outline in great detail their plan with the IEA to influence Brexit. And basically this think, ta- this think tank was bringing together funders from like the Oklahoma agriculture and energy sectors to fund work in the UK to try and influence Brexit. Carnuccio also told the reporter about the IEA's key weapon, a guy called Shankar Singham, who was apparently incredibly well-connected and could get your ideas in front of the right politicians. Here's a clip from the undercover recording. 
You know who he reminds me of? Right Have you ever band. seen uh, George Clooney was in a movie five, six years ago, but it, it's called uh, uh, Michael Clayton? Yeah, yeah, I saw it, yeah. This kind of fixer. So, yeah, yeah, so Shanker is like that, but for trade and economics and everything else, they, they all just seem to call him or want to talk to him to like figure out how to get things done. You might not have caught that, there was a lot of background noise, but there Kanuchio was comparing this character Singham to Michael Clayton, a man who can make things happen. The thing that was immediately apparent and actually quite surprising about that was how central a role this IEA trade expert called Shankar Singham was. I mean, Michael Carnuccio was telling our undercover guy basically about how they'd just been in the United Kingdom, how Shankar Singham had shown them round, he'd taken them into Parliament to meetings with the ERG, the European Research Group, which is led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, where they'd watched them count votes of no confidence against the Prime Minister. So they'd had this really privileged access. He was talking about how they'd been hosted by the IEA for a meeting with Brexit Minister Steve Baker. It was quite startling and immediately apparent like how how much of our hypothesis was, was real. Later, an aide to Steve Baker, who had held a senior position in the Department for Exiting the European Union, told Unearthed, any suggestion or implication of the same, that Mr Baker would attend meetings because access to him was being sold, is entirely false. On the occasion you refer to, Mr Baker met US Republicans in his political capacity to discuss trade relations between the two countries. But that wasn't the last. Later, that same day in Copenhagen, the reporter would finally talk to the man he was there to see, head of the IEA, a guy called Mark Littlewood. That evening, our reporter went back for the sort of evening's events and festivities where he was introduced to Mark Littlewood. And Mark Littlewood proceeded to tell him in great detail all about Shankar Singham's access to senior politicians. He said that he was writing Boris Johnson and Michael Gove's script on Brexit. If you don't mind me saying Shankar's name a few times, so oh, no, 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 that's the sort of thing yeah. that will reassure them. because And just he, Google him a bit and you'll, you'll, you'll see the nature of the beast. Right. I mean, so he's got like as good access, you were saying, as good access as you can have. Yeah, I would say he's got stronger than I've got. I mean, I would say I'm a good B minus on access to senior Conservative yeah. ministers. He's a very strong A. Great. Um, Great. I mean, yeah, on the on the side of we've got to get out of the customs union, he, he's writing Gove and Johnson's script. That's what got him in trouble. He got in trouble for that as well. Yeah, this letter <laughs> written to the Prime Minister was actually written by Singham. Yeah, I mean, it might be fine. Travelling back from Copenhagen, they were excited. They had their head of the IEA on film, boasting about having great access to top politicians, and in some cases, quote, writing the script for Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. And they had a US think tank, the E Foundation, explaining how they were using the IEA to get their free trade agenda in front of the right people, including pushing for a model trade deal to be signed by the governor of Oklahoma and Trade Secretary Liam Fox, and their plans for a trip to Oklahoma by leading Brexiteer MPs, where those MPs would eat chicken to try and improve the image amongst British shoppers of chlorine-washed chicken. But now the journalists had a decision. Do they publish what they have so far, or do they try to meet Littlewood again? And hope this time they'd also meet the so-called legendary fixer, Shankar Singham, too. More after this. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Back in London now, and Lawrence and Alice are looking over all they have from their undercover reporters. It's a lot, but there's still some questions remaining. And so they decide to try for more. They send off an email to Mark Littlewood, suggesting a sit-down meeting. Yeah, so the idea behind that was to, I guess we kind of knew what their plan was, but we, yeah, we wanted to hear from Shankar Singham, because Mark Littlewood had boasted a lot about the level of access enjoyed by Shankar Singham. So, in the IEA's offices, the undercover reporter heads back in and sits down with both Littlewood and Singham. But Singham was being considerably more guarded than his boss. He was very careful with what he said. Um, he said he was happy to, he'd be delighted to work with us. He'd show us around Westminster in a similar way to the way in which he'd done with the E-Foundation. But he left after about an hour. Um, and then Mark Littlewood proceeded to sort of outline in even more detail the access that they enjoy, but also how we could influence a report that they were writing on agriculture and Brexit. He said that we wouldn't be able to influence the conclusions, but that we could have significant content and affect the salience of kind of the issues and their importance within the report. And he also said, and this is a £42,000 report, he said that if we funded it, we could be sort of guests of honour at a dinner, uh, which it would be launched, which would, could potentially even include sitting next to Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary. So they had it. Proof that this think tank, a registered charity, was suggesting that donations to them could lead to getting content added to one of their policy reports, and boasting that they'd previously linked up US lobbyists with key Brexiteer politicians. But there was another issue to consider. When to publish. While the news agenda had been squarely focused on Brexit and little else for a long time, the actual plans for the UK's departure from the EU were constantly shifting. And just as the team were getting ready to publish, there was a pretty major development. Yeah, the problem with doing a story like this is that it's months and months of work and Brexit is kind of a moving target. We had quite a specific, tailored hypothesis and pitch, which was around environmental regulations. You know, our entire legend was constructed around the idea 
that we were this hedge fund that had investments in hormone reared beef and we wanted to ensure that there was that you know hormone reared beef was allowed into the UK after Brexit and then the checkers deal happened which was a large scale cabinet meeting um, which happened in I guess early June about a week after we'd met the IEA at which Theresa May basically said that all environmental standards would be kept the same, which was not an outcome that we could have predicted necessarily. And in the event, it all fell apart in days. But in the course of this, Steve Baker, who was a name who'd come up again and again and again in our investigation, he resigned. Um, David Davis resigned. Boris Johnson resigned. So you're watching sort of entire wings of of the sort of the potency of um, some of the things that they've said be stripped away. Now, in the event, obviously, you fast forward six months and the ERG is stronger than ever. Um, Shank Singham is writing the Malthouse Compromise, which is the ERG's answer to um, some of the Brexit plans. Steve Baker is on the airwaves constantly and all of these figures are in the ascendant again. But there was a quite an unpleasant moment, I would say, when it looked as though, you know, we had this entire story about the ERG, really, and about the influence that that particular wing of the argument had, and they had lost the argument. But despite the shifting sands, Unearth decided to stay firm. They would publish, and they'd shared their findings with The Guardian, who were going to publish too. But first they needed to make sure they had crossed every T and dotted every I, and they crucially needed to put what they'd found to the IEA, and everyone else mentioned in the story. So it's really important, particularly in a story like this, that you go to the people at the centre of the story and that you that you ensure that they've had an adequate chance to respond to everything that you're going to say about them and that they're aware that this story is coming. And it can be quite an uncomfortable process because you're aware that you you know you're affecting people's lives at this point. It's not something that you take lightly at all. At the same time, it, it feels like breaking cover. You've put months and months of work into this thing and then suddenly you're going, aha, we tricked you. We wrote these letters, extremely long, extremely detailed letters outlining exactly what we were going to say about people. Um, with the E Foundation and Michael Carnuccio, it took us days to try and track down the right people. One of the key steps is that you also have to ensure, it's not enough to send an email. You have to ensure that they've read the email. You have to make sure that you have it on the records, that they're aware. It's not enough to just fling an email into an info at account and hope it will be okay. And we had real trouble, didn't we, tracking down the E Foundation and Michael Carnuccio because they just, they just didn't want to respond particularly. With the IEA, within, I think, a day, they published an extremely long and detailed article on their website with all of our allegations and all of their responses to our allegations before we'd had a chance to publish our article. Now, when you do these right to replies, you want to ensure that someone's had a lot of time to respond because sometimes there might be follow-up questions. Sometimes you might need to nail down exactly what someone means by a particular statement. So we put in the right to replies before we had a clear publication date in mind. And you, you say to someone, can you please give us our, your responses within, say, three days? So it's quite a lengthy and drawn out process for an investigation like this. So I have to say we were a little bit wrong footed when they published their entire responses. Perhaps we shouldn't have been because this is something which a number of 
particularly Brexit-leaning organisations, have done quite a lot recently, but it was still quite startling when it happened. However, I do think that because of the nature of the story, it was so sort of wide-ranging across so many different issues and areas that I don't think that what they were saying would have made much sense to the uninformed observer. And it certainly didn't seem to have much of an impact. A spokeswoman from the IEA said, we've received no money to support our trade or Brexit work from any foreign business to date. Given our strict protocols, we see no reason, however, why we should not. She described unearthed evidence that the IEA was fundraising from agribusiness owners who stood to benefit from deregulation as tendentious and unfair. And she added, the prospective donors are businesses who stand to benefit from free and open trade in accordance with the UK regulations which should be in line with sound science and democratic accountability. UK businesses and consumers will also benefit from this. The E-Foundation issued a statement saying, the conversation supported the E-Foundation's purpose to explore global business and research opportunities. The informal conversations enlightened us on possibly mutually beneficial endeavours in the future between the United Kingdom and Oklahoma. Any suggestions the conversations were about something other than constructive business and research pursuits would be completely misguided. Finally, finally, after six months of work and some nail-biting moments, on the 29th of July 2018, the team published. My immediate reaction was relief that it kind of had made some level of impact because we felt that the, the findings of the investigation were really important and that um, it was kind of really in the public interest that that information was out there and kind of out there in a way that really kind of a lot of people saw and so it was a front page story in The Guardian. Mark Littlewood had to answer questions on the Today programme where John Humphrey said that the evidence was damning. So it's all right for you to, to go to um, somebody in the United States with loads of money who'd rather like to influence the way British politics is working, vis-a-vis -vis Brexit at any rate, and to say to them, give us a load of dosh and, and we will use our influence to enable you to have an interview or to have a meeting or whatever, lunch, dinner, whatever it happens to be, with uh, the, the minister involved. That's no, all right, is it? No, no, no. no I mean, no, that's no. what PR firms do. No, 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 no. We do the research. So... In the, you've probably only heard a few clips from the transcript provided by Greenpeace. Unfortunately, yeah, pretty damning they were. Well, too. pretty uh, <laughs> Greenpeace. Unfortunately, have refused to provide me with the full transcript. We try to raise money to do research. We produce a million words of peer-reviewed research every year. Then later that day, Shankar Singham was on Newsnight with Emily Maitlis, who also gave him a real grilling. I actually watched the story get published from Vietnam because I was at a friend's wedding. The day the story was published, actually, the Charity Commission announced that it was going to be investigating because the Institute of Economic Affairs is a an educational charity. So it's bound by quite strict rules about what kind of political engagement it can have. So it was quite contentious that uh, Mark Littlewood was on record on tape saying that uh, they were waging a campaign for a particular type of Brexit. The Charity Commission launched an investigation. The Parliamentary Lobbying Commissioner also launched an investigation. That was that day. Well, I don't think there's anything murky about trying to raise cash. I'm not aware of any think tank that doesn't have to raise cash. The Lobbying Commissioner's investigation fizzled out, but the Charity Commission was keeping a close eye on the IEA. 
When in September, the think tank published an alternative plan to Chequers, it was at first welcomed by certain politicians, but not by everyone. There was this big launch with David Davis and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Boris Johnson hailed the report as this fantastic piece of work. And the Charity Commission, um, which was already looking into them after our investigation, came down on this and said, you've really crossed the line here. This is not within your remit as an educational charity. So the trustees of the IEA are now on notice. They have to review all of their publications to make sure that they don't break charity law. And the IEA has been quite sharply criticised for taking too much involvement in the Brexit process, mm. basically. They had to withdraw that report. They had to, yeah, they had to withdraw that report from their, from their website. They had to delete all of their um, publicity material about it. The IEA told Unearthed in the Guardian that companies donate money to the IEA for their own reasons and the IEA's role is to ensure that it is blind to these reasons and no company is able to guide IEA's research conclusions. The think tank maintains it has no corporate view and does not undertake campaigns. A spokeswoman said, A free trade agreement between the UK and US is not in itself a controversial proposition and is in fact government policy. She added, The stakes of the Brexit process are high, in our opinion, and our work focuses around a Brexit that delivers free trade and open markets in line with the IEA's principles and charitable objectives. And as we put out this episode, we're no closer to knowing what kind of deal the UK is leaving with, if any at all. And so all the same questions remain about just who the country will trade with in the future and what that means for our food. That's all for this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks to Alice Ross and Lawrence Carter. I've put links to their stories in the show notes. That's the last episode in this series of The Tip-Off. We'll have more for you coming out in the summer. Just want to say thank you so much to everyone for listening, for tweeting about it, for leaving us great reviews on Apple Podcasts and, and other places. It's really lovely to get your feedback. And we're delighted to be nominated at the British Podcast Awards for Smartest Podcast of the Year. So there you go. You must be some of the smartest podcast listeners out there. We also have a shot in the Listener's Choice Awards if you guys want to vote for us. It only takes a second and you just need to go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote to do that. Thanks so much again for listening. This has been a tip off. I'm your host and producer Maeve McLennigan and the show is co-produced and edited with Chica Ayres. Our theme tune is by Dice Muse. Make sure you're subscribed and stay tuned in the summer for more stories behind the headlines. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 